Um, great to be with you. Thanks to everyone who's online with us today. It's great to be together. Uh, we are starting into a new series today called What is a Biblical Worldview? I've been over the last several months through the summer months and into the fall began thinking about how people understand ultimate reality and how that has shaped uh, values and the direction of our culture. And I thought it would just be appropriate for us to speak into some of that um, over the course of the next couple of months. It'll take us into the Christmas season. Um, I wanted to, uh, you say, well, a biblical worldview, I know what the Bible is, but what are you talking about when you talk about a worldview? Well, a worldview is a framework of how we understand how we see ultimate reality. And a worldview is composed of presuppositions. And so a presupposition can be defined as this. It's a rock-bottom foundational belief that all people have that's not testable in a science lab. You can't go into a science lab with your, with your beaker and your other chemicals and test something out and confirm something. There's no empirical data for this particular belief system. It's a presupposition. You arrive with this belief in the world and you say, this is how I understand the world in which I live. And then you bring all those presuppositions together and they form a framework for reality. That is what we would call a worldview. A worldview can then be defined as a network of presuppositions through which every aspect of man's knowledge and experience is interpreted and interrelated. People's presuppositions determine how they interpret and evaluate every experience in which they will or will not accept the overall, their overall view of what is or is not reality. So my aim for the series is to identify what are the presuppositions that the Bible has. What are the presuppositions that the authors of the Bible have as they sat down to write Scripture uh, that they started out with, and then to string all those together, and then with some crystal clarity for us to say, okay, well, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what ultimate reality is. This is what, therefore, I believe, right? So that's, our, that's kind of our goal. And the first of those presuppositions is that God is our creator. So that's what we're going to start with today. Not just that God exists, we'll talk about that here in just a little bit, but more than that, that God is our creator, that the God of the universe actually created this world in which we live. Again, that's the first of these foundational building blocks for how we understand ultimate reality and our place and purpose in it, okay? So let's stand together to read from God's Word, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. It's going to be familiar. You're not going to be standing very long. Here's what it says, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's read together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, before we get into that God as our creator, I want to talk a little bit about an interesting fact uh, about the physical universe. Here's a picture of the physical universe. This is uh, a model generated by the Hubble telescope. Hubble went up into the sky back in the late 90s and has been doing some incredible work ever since, taking pictures of the universe, taking pictures of far-off distant galaxies, things that we thought were stars are actually clusters of stars. We call them galaxies. And so this amazing stuff that Hubble has discovered. Uh, but there's a problem in what Hubble discovered, is, and it is its placement of us, the Milky Way galaxy, our placement of the Earth in this picture that you see here. Uh, Hubble places us in the right lower quadrant, over here, right lower quadrant of this picture. Um, not at the edge, but in the right lower section of this picture. And why might that be a problem? That's a problem because people like Carl Sagan taught that the cosmos is all there is, it's all there ever was, and all there ever will be. The idea that the physical world in which we live, in which we inhabit, is all that there is. They, atheists thought that Hubble would go up into the sky and see that the universe goes off into infinity. But that's not what they found. What they found is that the earth is in the right lower quadrant. In other words, it's not at the center. And so what we're looking at is not some sort of, I can't say, well, the edge of the universe is some sort of a cosmic horizon, kind of like Christopher Columbus when he's seated on the dock watching the ships disappear over the horizon. 
They can't say because we're in the center while well, I'm looking at some sort of a horizon of the physical universe. We're in the right lower quadrant of that thing, and we, so we're, we are seeing an edge. We're not in the center of it. And this becomes a real problem because it then begins to beg the question of what lies beyond. How can there be a physical edge to the universe? How can the physical universe not be infinite? Because if it's not infinite, if it's a closed system, if it's a finite system, then what lies beyond? Well, the Bible tells us, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, again, let's look at that. It begins by saying that in the beginning, who? God. It doesn't say in the beginning man. It doesn't say in the beginning protoplasm. It doesn't say in the beginning cosmic inflation. It doesn't say in the beginning carbon and nitrogen and some sort of a lucky lightning bolt. It says in the beginning God. That is, before there were any living creatures, before there was an earth for them to live on, before there were stars, before there was energy, before there was gravity of any kind, before there was matter, molecules, atoms, before there was anything, there was, back when there was nothing, God. That's what the Bible declares. And what did this God do? Well, the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the Hebrew word that's used there for created is, comes from the Hebrew, is the Hebrew term barah. Can you all say that with me? Uh-huh. So bara, And so it's the idea that God created. And it's a word that's only used in, for God. It's, it's a word that only God does. Uh, other people in the Bible don't get to bara. Only God gets to bara. You say, well, what's so significant about the fact that God does this and nobody else can do this? Well, the term actually means that he created out of nothing. That he created out of nothing. And so God barahed the heavens and the earth. God created them from nothing. And now this is something that you and I as human beings simply cannot do. We can take something, a piece of wood, we can whittle it down and work with some tools and turn it into a piece of furniture. So we had to take something and then we turned it into something else. So we take raw materials and we can turn them into something. But we can't take nothing and turn it into something. Only God can take nothing and turn it into something. Y'all follow me? And so that's what's saying, that's what's saying here that God did. So turn to somebody next to you and tell them you cannot barah. All right, there you go. So the Bible declares that God is so unique, he's so awesome, he's so unlimited in his power that he brought all the matter and the elements and the energy of the universe into existence from nothing, that he barad the universe. And so to summarize, what is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 asking you and I to believe? It's asking you and I to believe that the God of the universe personally, single-handedly, is who existed outside of the finite world in which we live, that he is what exists, he is what is infinite, and that he personally and single-handedly, ex nihilo, that is from nothing, created from nothing, and that he did this in six 24-hour days. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, in the morning and in the evening, or there was morning and there was evening on the first day. And then in verse 8 it says, and there was morning and there was evening on the second day. And if you go through the rest of Genesis chapter 1, you keep seeing that same phraseology in the morning and the evening, or there was morning and there was evening on the third day, the fourth day, and so on. The Hebrew word that's used there for day is the word yom, and it means a literal 24-hour day. Not a cosmic epic, not an eon, not an era, but a 24-hour day. This word yom appears throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and it is always referring to a 24-hour day. And that's the meaning that's used here. If the author had wanted to say epic, he would have said, and there was evening and there was morning in the first epic. He didn't say that. If he had wanted to say that there was an era that took place over the course of many, many, many years, he would have said that. He had the word many at his disposal. If he had wanted to say million, trillion years, the author would have said that. 
But the author doesn't say that. He says there was evening and there was morning on the first day, the second day, the third day, a 24-hour time period. And this is the declaration of Genesis chapter 1, that God barad, the universe, created it from nothing in six 24-hour days. You say, okay, Gordon, I can wrap my head around God creating in 24-hour days. I mean, he is God. Nothing is too hard for him. If he'd wanted to create the world in six days, he could do that. I mean, that's, that's up to him. He can do that if he wants to do that. But I got a few questions for you, okay? And some whatabouts. So here we go. Question number one, what about the fact that there are stars in the universe that are billions of light years away? You know, it took billions of years for that light to make it from that star, even at its inception, to my eyes here on earth. Doesn't the fact that there's light that's that old in the universe confirm that the universe is a lot older or a lot different than with a biblical concept here? Well, the answer is absolutely not. I bet you're wondering why. Because wouldn't it, doesn't it make sense that the God who hung the stars in the sky would have also had the wherewithal to place the photons in place from the star that he had just created all the way to our eyes here on the earth? Doesn't it make sense that he would have done that? Not just that he would have created the stars, but he had strung out those photons across the many, many miles of space so that we could see what he had created. You say, okay, well, what about um, all these smart scientists? I mean, all these smart scientists, don't all the scientists agree that the earth is not the biblical account, that that we didn't arrive here, that we weren't created this way? I mean, it seems kind of small on our part to ignore what they're saying about the origins of the universe and about the age of the universe? What about all that? Well, hang on just a second, friend. That's a pretty big assumption that all the smart scientists are thinking this. In an article in Science Digest, this very issue was raised, and here's what they concluded, and I quote, Scientists who utterly reject evolution may be one of the fastest-growing minorities in the scientific community. Many of these scientists hold impressive credentials in science. So what that's saying is that a lot of scientists have looked at the evidence of the complexity of biological life and said, there's no way that this just happened by circumstance. And they're beginning to retract and retreat from some of their evolutionary theories. Another guy by the name of Dr. William Hamilton, biologist from Oxford University, writes, the theological possibility that explains the origin of the universe is certainly still alive. Dr. Henry Morganell, a physicist at Yale University, writes in his book, Cosmos, Bios, and Theos, he says, there is only one convincing answer for the intricate laws that exist in the natural world, and that is creation by an omnipotent, all-wise God, professor at Yale University. Dr. Paul Davies, a physicist at Arizona State University, writes, and I quote, the very fact that the universe is creative and that it has permitted complex structures to emerge and develop to the point of consciousness In other words, the very fact that the universe has organized its own self-awareness is, for me, powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. The impression of design is overwhelming. And then finally, Dr. Ronald Numbers, a historian at the University of Wisconsin, writes, published scientists with creationist beliefs are not uncommon. Friends, we have been duped. Duped into believing by culture that all smart scientists believe that the world that we see is all that there is and that there is no God behind any of it. 
You know, in the last decade or so, um, I got a model. I want to go back to that model that I just shared with you a few moments ago of the universe that Hubble has shown us. And uh, a couple of years ago, or the last decade or so, scientists have realized that they painted themselves into a corner uh, with the Big Bang Theory, this idea that things started in the middle, Big Bang, and stuff shot out, and the, the universe is continually inflating, but it's slowing down, but it's constantly growing. And so they realized, you know what, we've, just by our own theory here, we've created a finite world, a closed system, and the physical universe is not all that there is. And so they've had to rethink some of this, some of their presuppositions. And so what they've done is they've redefined the term universe. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but it's been redefined such that now the term universe includes both physical space as well as the space that lies beyond the uh, edge of the physical universe. Um, I got another picture for you here, and it shows uh, that same picture. And you can see there in the center of the bright white light, kind of the Big Bang concept, Everything shoots out, and at the outer edges, you see all the little, uh, what do you want to call those little areas? Anyhow, all the little lines, squirrely lines, squiggly lines, as the artist's rendering, of uh, kind of where the Big Bang is still working its way, inflating, and things are still kind of growing out. And then everything between where the Big Bang concept edge of the universe is, again, if that's the theory you, you, you listen to or you believe in, um, that that's the new part of the universe. So the edge of the universe is the, mo the newest, the most recently acquired real estate of the physical universe. And as you work your way back toward the middle, then you're getting to the oldest parts of the physical universe. And so everything in between there is, as you move closer toward the middle, things are more developed. Uh, that's the kind of area where we occupy. Things have um, worked their way toward what they are today. But you got the new part at the edge, and you got the old part in the center. And so scientists have you know, been working through this and, and saying that, again, space is infinite, and they want to include both the physical universe and what lies beyond the edge. That, that's what they're doing. So they're redefining what the universe is, that it's no longer the physical universe that we live in. Everybody follow me so far on that? It was a little dizzying for me this past week, to be quite honest with you, as I was reading through all this stuff, having to rethink and redefine some of, or, or re-understand um, how we understand these things. So, um, that there's the observable universe. And then, then others have said, no, we don't agree with that theory. Others have said that what Hubble discovered with the edge of the universe, everything around there is actually just dark matter. And that there's this dark matter that exists around the, the boundaries of, uh, of the physical universe, and that that's what we're seeing. That's, that's, that's the edge. That's the physical boundary that we're seeing. Um, and so they would say that, that that's why there's no cosmic horizon that we can identify. Now, um, what's interesting is that in both of these explanations, both of them claim, both the explanation that says the physical universe or the universe is both the physical and what lies beyond it, and those that say, no, it's the physical universe and then dark matter and dark matter is infinity. In both of those, what they're claiming is that the universe is infinite. Here's a statement from NASA's website, okay? It says the universe is infinite in extent. However, since the universe has a finite age, we can only observe a finite volume of the universe. And all we can conclude is that the universe is much larger than the volume we directly observe or the area that we occupy. Let me break that down for you, what they're saying. They're saying that we will not accept that the universe is a closed system. That's what they're saying. That we will not accept that the universe is finite because we cannot allow a divine foot the door. That's what they're saying. 
Here's how another astronomer explained it, and I apologize because I lost my source on this one, but here's the quote nonetheless. It says, the universe isn't itse or itself is not finite in volume, even though it is. We can approach that boundary only through telescopes and through theory until we figure out how to circumvent the forward flow of time. So he's literally thinking about the boundaries of space and how it's in constantly inflating, slowing down, I suppose. And he says, we, until we can get past that boundary, until we can get past that edge, he says, we're just kind of stuck not knowing what lies beyond. And he, said, he goes on to say, until we figure out how to circumvent the forward flow of time, then that will be our only approach to better understand the edge of the universe. Friends, I submit to you that the Bible reveals what this man is looking for. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth that God is what is infinite, that God is what exists beyond, and he can enter into and exit out of with the blink of an eye, with just a thought, our physical universe. He's not limited to it. Um, something is infinite. Something is infinite. And the Bible proposes that God is who is infinite. Now, you can either choose to wait for the Starship Enterprise to one day fly out to the edge of space and tell you what is out there, or you can listen to the words of Scripture. But either way, it represents a leap of faith. Either way, you're putting your trust in something that we can't put empirical data to, that we can't verify in a science lab. It's a presupposition, and it forms the framework in which we understand ourselves and our ultimate reality and our purpose in this world. I love the quote from Dr. Robert Hastro. He's a brilliant astrophysicist, not a Christian, by the way. And he writes, and I quote, For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Now, here's the interesting part. That's not the end of his quote. Let me start back at the beginning. We'll go ahead to the next slide. Here's his full quote. He says, For the scientist who has lived by faith in, his, in, the, in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He's scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries and saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Friends, do you see what we're up against? We're up against a presupposition, a worldview that wants to believe that the physical world is all that there is, that God does not exist, and certainly the God of the Bible is not that God. Friends, that's what we're up against. Um, that is pure naturalism. It's the presupposition that God does not exist, that nature is all that there is, that we have no creator, that God could not possibly be the answer to the infinity problem. And why all the cajoling? Why all the mental gymnastics to try and explain all of this, to try and explain God away? Well, friends, if we can, explain, if we can, if we can uh, rationalize God out of existence then we don't have to we don't concern ourselves with his standards. And if we don't have to concern ourselves with his standards, then we can live however we want to live. Friends, this is nothing more than a love of iniquity. That's all this is, pure and simple. All right, 
It's time for us to, that's our treatment of this topic for today. Y'all doing all right? I got a little science lesson here this morning. I felt like you were in philosophy class back in college, didn't you, for a little bit there. Um, but it's time for us to ask our most important question. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I mean, I, again, appreciate the, the science lesson, but I mean, how does this help me in the world that I live in and, the, and getting off to work and trying to make a success of things and all the things that I got going on? How does this, what difference does this make to me? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. Um, knowing that I have God as my creator, starting with that presupposition, as I start my day, as I go out into the world, knowing that God is my creator, it does a couple of things for me. So two things here I want to share with you. Number one, it provides accountability for me. If you flip over to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, um, we see there that we've come to the end of time. This is uh, John looking down the corridor of time, and he's thinking about what is happening in human history. And we've come to the end of human history, and all of humanity is standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And each one is giving an account of their life. And he says in Revelation chapter 20, and verse 12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books, each according to what they had done. And then again, he repeats those same words in verse 13. Should make us listen up. It says, and they were judged, each of humanity, each one of them, according to what they had done. Um, what this verse tells me is that one day I will have to stand before my creator and give account for what I did with the breath that he gave me. What did I do with the talents that he handed to me? Did I use them for his glory? Did I use them to build up his kingdom? Or did I use them for myself, for my own gain? What did I do with those things? Now, I don't know about you, but um, all the Halloween and our Halloween candy in our house is gone. It was gone probably a week, about a week ago. Um, and we had a lot of it, too. We did a really good job of getting after it. But some of it maybe disappeared in the trash can. I don't know. I'm not going to own that. But in uh, any case, all the Halloween candy in our house is gone. And the thing is, the Halloween candy in our house was all kept in the kitchen. Um, Claire had it in a cupboard there, and then there was some kind of out in a little open candy dish area. And the thing is, Mama hangs out in the kitchen. So if you wanted some Halloween candy, you, know, you had to go through there, but you knew somebody was watching and so you couldn't just grab fistfuls, stuff them in your pockets, and then go upstairs and then hide them in the couch cushions or something like that. All the wrappers, I never did any of that. But in any case, you know, so, so you knew that somebody was watching. You knew that there was some sort of accountability for, uh, for this candy that you're wanting. It, you had to attack it with some sort of moderation. Well, just the same, knowing that, my, that I have a creator and that my creator is watching me, friends, and that one day I'll have to stand and give account to him for my life, Friends, this is a good thing. It tempers my passions. It puts a check in some of my rebellious spirit. It throttles back my indulgences. The presupposition that God is my creator. Second thing. What difference does it make that God is my creator? Second thing. If God is my creator, then I look to him for purpose and for meaning in life. If I'm a created being, and the God of the Bible is the God of the universe, then I need to look to him who created me for what I'm supposed to be doing here in this world. You know, the world system inundates us every day with who they think we should be. The world society has no lack of ideas for how you should spend your life. Um, I got a picture for you here, and if you've been around our church for a while, this will be something you're familiar with. Um, let me share it with you. This is a model of maturity. It's six stages of maturity. It was created 
back in the, I guess, 80s, late, early 90s, uh, by, the late, by the name of Janet Hagberg. I still actually use this in some of my courses that I teach. Um, just trying to explain how human beings grow, how we mature, that maturity is a process, as well as a place that you arrive, eventually you become mature. And so let me just kind of explain really quickly what you're seeing here. The first stage of maturity that she identifies is powerlessness. Um, powerlessness are people who uh, don't know how to take the next step to improve their life. Like they, they just feel stuck. They don't know what education to go get. Maybe they don't have enough education to get the job that they would want that would kind of elevate their life and help them achieve more in life. And so they just feel, and this could be somebody who has substance abuse issues, they just feel stuck in their current situation. So she would call that stage one powerlessness. Now the second stage she calls association or power by association. These are people who um, identify with a particular group. So if I get together with other people and I can identify with these people, then by being a part of this group, then therefore I'm somebody of significance. I find my meaning in being a part of this group. These are also people who look to stage three people. Let me talk about stage three people for just a moment. They look to stage three people to find some of their identity and significance in life as well. Stage three folks, we might think of these as like professional athletes or people who have climbed the corporate ladder, have the corner, corner office. Maybe, they've, maybe you've done well financially. Maybe you live in a nice house, have a nice car. Also, some of the trappings of success, the materialism, those sorts of things in life. And they define themselves by those things. That because I've acquired these things, because I've achieved these titles, because I've got this job or this status in society, or I'm a senator, United States senator, right? Those sorts of things. Then I'm somebody important, right? And you go to Washington, D.C., and you walk into somebody's office, and they want, or they walk into your office, and they want you to stand up because, hey, I just walked into the room, you know, so you need to stand up because I'm the important person around here. And uh, so that's stage three kind of mentality, that stage three kind of attitude that, look, I've achieved all these things. And so stage two people, not all, some, um, want to associate with these stage three folks to find their sense of importance, to find their sense of significance. And they'll Facebook out, hey, look who I was hanging out with this weekend, or look at where I was, and I was at this thing. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with telling people that you went to the Georgia game. That's great. I'm glad for you to go to the Georgia game. It's not a bad thing for you just to tell people that you went to the Masters. Not this year, but it's a great thing to go to the Masters. But if we find our significance... If we find our identity in life, in the things that we associate with, or in the symbols of success, the Bible says, hold, time out just a second. And that's where stage four comes in. Stage four is a reflection stage. And this is where we begin to ask the ultimate questions of life. What am, what am I, this doesn't seem like something worth living for. It seems kind of shallow. It seems kind of hollow. It doesn't seem like something that I want to put all my energies toward. There's got to be more to life than this. And so a person begins to ask those questions and think about what would my life look like if I didn't live for those things? And so then they begin living out a response to those questions, the answers that they came up with, and they begin to live at stage five, which is a sense of purpose. That, look, my life is bigger than just achieving these things, acquiring these things, having this title, being a portion of importance in society. But I want my life to be poured out for the sake of others. I want for my life to mean something, to see other people elevated and raised up and, 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 and made whole. And begin pouring our lives and living selflessly. And so that's the stage five, the power by purpose. And then the final stage, stage six, is kind of like the Mother Teresa's. It's kind of like the uh, Mark Ricks. It's kind of like, I know it's old school, but anyhow, it's kind of like those kind of folks. It's, it's, a, it's a football coach from high school. It's your grandmother. People that you still remember and they... When you think about them, they call you to live with more, to live for more than just 
that stage three material trappings and success. They call you out from those things and call you across to say, look, pour your life out for other people. Make your life about something more than just you and the stuff that you can acquire. And that's those stage six people. They don't have to be famous. Again, they can just be people who are very meaningful and important in your life. But again, they call you to a life of deeper meaning and purpose. (sighs) Friends, who's giving you your identity? Where are you finding your meaning and your purpose in life? If you start with the presupposition that God is my creator, then we look to him for purpose and meaning. The Bible says that he has a plan for your life. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. And beyond just his specific plan for your life, he has a general plan for your life. That you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That you love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, all we need to do to find purpose and meaning in life is get on our knees before the one who created us and spend time with him. And he'll reveal our identity to us. He'll reveal what our life is supposed to be about. Let's pray. Most gracious God, thank you so much for talking to us today from your word. Thank you that not only are we created beings, but Lord, that you have made yourself known to us. And that we're not just left to the world's ideas of what we should be and what we should become and its identity that it wants us to grab hold of, but that, Lord, we can turn to you the God of the universe. Lord, today, we need to just reaffirm ourselves in your presence that you are God, that our lives belong to you. Lord, in this time of quiet communion today, hear our prayer. God, as we gather around this table, we're reminded of your shed blood and of your son's broken body. We are thankful that because of what he accomplished on the cross, we can enter into this relationship with you, that your ear is bent toward us as we pray. Holy Spirit, encourage us today to spend that time with you in these moments and in the moments this week, just like this. Seeking you, finding our identity, our purpose in you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. The communion elements are there uh, in your seats, and so we invite you to take time uh, in sharing those together.